Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Good morning. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Almost hate breaking up what I'm seeing right now. Community time. So has the community time gotten better since we've been doing the liturgy? Yes, Ryan says yes. For Ryan, it's gotten a lot better. So um, my name is Greg Singleton. Hi. I am honored to be one of the elders here at the church. Um, but before I get deep into what I want to talk to you about today, and of course it is always deep with me, very theological, um, I want to introduce my family to you. I don't know if it's um, a dad thing or what it is, but I love, love coming to church with my family, and we're kind of scattered out now, so I thought I would introduce them to you by picture. Uh, seven, uh, let's see about a year and a half ago or so. When we first started coming here six years ago, I think, uh, we were seven strong. Um, and uh, My oldest daughter, Valley, is the furthest from the left. Second Second from the left. (laughs) So I'm a good dad. Uh, Let's see. Okay, so Valley is second from, who helped me? You? She's the second from the left, Valley. She's 23. She lives in Los Angeles. She moved out there about a year and a half ago. She works for me part-time, and she works at a church in the kids' ministry out there. Jackson is wearing a green jacket, and he's our oldest son. Jackson had a really unique opportunity to move to Los Angeles when he was 17 to get involved in the music business out there, and he's still out there pursuing that. Sophia is all the way closest to the ship over there. Um, She is in college. She's 19. She still lives at home. Uh, You don't get to see her as much because she works at a church here in town on Sunday mornings as well in the kids ministry. Will Preston is right there and right there. (laughs) Will is 16. He does live at home. Um, And then Mia lives at home too. She's right there. She's Mia just turned nine. We're glad that she lives at home. This was uh, this was actually in Monterey, California last summer. We had an amazing I mean, probably the best trip of my life. Right, Annie? And that's my wife, with whom I'm well pleased. I want to say something gross. It's not a gross. It's kind of on par with the course. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So that is Annie. I'll be talking a little bit about her later. But we have spent the last seven weeks exploring the heartbeat of God. I want to do a real quick recap for you. Week one, we started by realizing the importance of trusting God's heart that it is with us, and that we abide in him and we learn to trust that he is good. On week two, Ryan shared with us exactly how God best shared his heart with us, that by sending his son, God was made known through him. On week three, Cole shared about how sensitivity gives us a soft heart to keep listening. The challenge was and is that no matter where you are in your journey, to not harden your heart, but to stay sensitive. Next, we talked about the tenderness of God's heart, how we can know his heart by looking for those he draws close. Week five, we talked about how God's heart is to deliver us from the desert to freedom in him. We need to be delivered from our own personal Egypt. 
And then last week, if you were here, Dan gave a stirring message where he, sh- he shared parts of his story about how we serve a God that redeems us and redeems our stories. So as of last Friday, Dan also gave his testimony that Friday night before he spoke on Sunday, and Annie and Mia, no, Annie and Sophie and Will were here with us. I went home that night, went to bed, and I already figured out what I was going to talk about this morning. I'd, Ryan and I had been talking about it, and the Lord woke me up at about 3 in the morning, that Saturday morning, early in the, in the morning, and he said, I have something else that I want you to talk about. He said, I want you to share your story and how we have dismantled some misconceptions about me, me being God. Well, I told the Lord that I already had what I was going to talk about. <laughs> I wasn't real keen on changing this, so I figured I would text the most spiritual person on the planet, being Ryan. Why are people laughing, Ryan? So, so I, I, texted, I texted Ryan the next morning. I said, Ryan, the Lord woke me up in the middle of the night. And he wants me to tell the story and what it's about. And Ryan gave me a capital Y-E-S exclamation point. So that's what we're going to do this morning. How through the work of the Holy Spirit, God is continuing to create correct thinking and a correct heart posture as I view the Father. And I want to do this around three main themes in my life. And interesting, these themes are chronological. Chronological in how I continue to learn the heart of the Father. And they are these three. The Father's heart is for His children to receive His love. Not just believe it's true or to be convinced it's for others, but to receive it for yourself. Secondly, that God's heart is full of grace. Grace is not just a means to salvation, but an acceptance of yourself and how the Father sees you. And thirdly, God's heart is that you would embrace Him in your trials and your sorrows. So receiving His love is the first thing I want to talk about. This picture here that you're going to see is my family. That is, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say by the, 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 the TV and the peace sign below, that's 1970. Um, that's me right in the middle. I was the middle of five kids. Um, I must say that's an Easter picture based on the, the suit coats and bow ties. But um, my, this is a very interesting time for my parents. They, um, I would say about this time or right after this time, they had, had just sort of, come to a, a personal relationship with Jesus. Uh, my dad was a very religious man, uh, came from a very devout Catholic family. My mom said that that is something that really attracted her to him. She was very much a searcher. If you ever wonder why Jehovah's Witness and Buddhists still go door to door, it's because of people like my mom. She opened the door to anybody and she would read their pamphlets and talk to them. Well, from a friend, from a friend of a friend, uh, she ended up going to a Bible study and she met a personal Jesus and she is the matriarch of our family. I think about the, this time with my parents and that they had these five kids and they just, you know, they're on this, this new journey. We were going to Mass and going to, well, I guess you would call it an evangelical church where you have the Bible open and you go through different things. The church that we were going to was very conservative. I would say it even bordered on um, legalistic. Not so much of what they were saying, but probably more about what they weren't saying. The emphasis on rules and correct behavior 
and an emphasis on sin did not mix well with a dad that had a tendency toward anger. During the early years, especially for my two brothers and myself, there was very little verbal affection. There was no physical affection and punishments were very, very harsh. I never wanted to be in the presence of my dad. It wasn't that I was afraid that he was going to do some random thing to hurt me. It was just I wanted to avoid his presence. I remember we had, uh, our kitchen was in the back of the house, and you could enter through the family room or the dining room, but it was kind of a circle kind of thing. And I remember if I was in the kitchen eating a bowl of cereal, and my dad, I heard my dad coming down the stairs and coming to the kitchen, I would quickly dump it into the sink and exit through the dining room. So I wasn't, wasn't in his presence alone. This had nothing to do with our family altogether. I loved that. It was just being alone with him. One night when I was heading up to bed, this must have been eighth grade, ninth grade, my dad stopped me and he said, I want to talk to you. So I sat down and, and he proceeded to say that um, your mother tells me that you don't think I love you. Well, I wanted to kill my mom. <laughs> my mom was my confidant and I told her everything. I didn't know what to say to my dad, and he just said, well, I do, and I remember not believing him. Later on in, into my high school years, my mom was able to give me some perspective on my dad. She was able to tell me some things about what he was like and, and his growing up, and she asked me, she said, have you ever noticed when you go to your grandparents' house, my dad's parents, said that you, your grandfather never hugs you? There's no physical attention. I started, even as I was thinking about this, I was, and preparing for this, I was thinking, I, I can't remember one meaningful conversation I had with my grandparents. My sister, no, my mom was told by my dad's older sister, my dad was very young um, in the five kids that he grew up in, and um, his sister told my mom she was out of the house at the time, and she would come in, my dad was, was uncared for. She would come and find him in his crib, and he was there for hours on end. So this information started to help me grow some compassion and some grace. And isn't that interesting too when you, even if it's as small as something that someone annoys you, when you find out a little bit about their story, you find out something about them that maybe makes them why they are the way they are, that, that you have this grace that comes out. This helped me to begin to believe that my dad loved me, but it felt like it was an ob obligation. It did not feel like he liked me. But the father's heart is for his children to receive his love, not just believe it's true or be convinced it's for others, but to receive it for yourself. Well, fast forward to 1991. I was 26 years old, and I just took a job that was going to move me from Ohio, Columbus, Ohio, to Orlando, Florida. Interestingly enough, I met Annie in Ohio. Annie was living in Ohio. I met her one week after I took this job to move. Very interesting, God's timing in my life, in our lives. I met Annie, and I took this job in March. I met her on a, so I took this job. A week later, I meet Annie on a blind date, and I moved to Orlando at the end of April. So we saw each other. We lived two hours apart. We saw each other for two months, two hours apart. I don't know how many times. I then, once I was here, I asked Annie to marry me in June, and we got married in December of that year, which was a crazy year. We're still married. 
But back to that, that move that day, I remember my dad said, Greg, how are you, how are you gonna get down there? What are you gonna do? And I said, well, I'll probably just rent a U-Haul and just drive down there. And he said, well, what, how about if I take you? I was like, no, I will, I will get a friend to take me. Um, he said, no, I really think I want, I, I'm gonna, I wanna take you down there. He's very insistent on, on doing this. So I'm thinking 17 hours with AM radio and a U-Haul is gonna be brutal. But we made off on the track and it was a very, very quiet trip. Uh, we got to Jacksonville and, and my dad said, let's spend the night and we'll get up early and head back to Orlando. And I said, no, dad, let's just keep going. I mean, I'm thinking it's been 17, 16 hours, AM radio. Now we're gonna deal with a hotel room and beds. Didn't wanna mess with that, but we did. We spent the night, got up early the next morning. About 30 minutes outside of Orlando, my dad broke the silence with what would be a 30-minute confession. And when you've never seen your dad cry and confess these things that go back, that I've dealt, you know, I've put this stuff off and I believe you love me, I just, my heart just, it broke for him. The compassion that I had for him, he talked to me about how, whether it was discipline or whether literally saying things to me like, as my third child, I wanted you to be a girl and you were a boy. These things that were just hard for him. He saw this goof off in me that he didn't, he felt like he was so worthless. He didn't want me to turn out to be like him. All these things he was talking to me. And I, I, mean, I said, Dad, I forgive you. It's okay. Um, I'm sure I wasn't an easy kid to raise. The timing of that confession and when I met Annie and when I met Annie's family is huge. Annie is the greatest, the person in my life that's made, it's just, this stuff is just a little too much for me. Greatest impact on my life, um, spiritually. She doesn't have a problem receiving God's love and to be intertwined with someone like that was just amazing. Annie's parents came down to visit about 12 months after that trip, so about six months being married, they came down to visit us in our apartment, and um, I was just getting to know Annie, let alone her parents. I mean, it's crazy. We were sitting there that one night, and I should preface that Annie's dad's a family counselor, so I think sometimes they have ways of talking to you that things tend to come out. But we were talking about my life and my story and my family, and the next thing I knew it, I was in my father-in-law's arms just weeping. Something broke in me. And as I was beginning to realize my father's love and to accept that confession, I was also realizing how much of my feelings and that relationship I had projected onto God. I was able to process that not only was I receiving a love from an earthly father, but I was able to receive love from my heavenly father. And not just a love, I was very keyed in on a love that sent his son and died for our sins. Sort of a for the world love. But now I was able to see that he loved Greg and he actually liked me. You know, I will forever be grateful for my dad, my father-in-law. My dad demonstrated humility and confession my father-in-law walking me through that part of my story has changed me as a dad. I can go to my kids and talk to them about my failures and 
say sorry to them. Listen to this verse from Galatians 2.20. My old identity has been co-crucified with Messiah and no longer lives. For the nails of his cross crucified me with him. And now the essence of this new life is no longer mine. For the anointed one lives his life through me. We live in union as one. My new life is empowered by the faith of the Son of God who loves me so much that he gave himself for me and he dispenses his life into mine. So my message to you is to crucify those things that are stopping you from receiving his love. Whether it it was yesterday or your childhood, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about that as far as how we hold on to some of that stuff. But no matter when it was, he crucified that for you. And he makes it new every day. God's heart is full of grace. Grace is not just a means to salvation, but an acceptance of yourself and how the Father sees you. I started out by telling you that um, a lot of my behavior was the measuring stick for my life spiritually. Unconfessed sin to me was a big deal. Like, if I didn't confess it right away, or if I didn't get it confessed before I went to bed, then my spiritual life was in shambles. I was somehow disconnected with God. And it's a brainwashing like this from Satan that is extremely hard to shake. It creates thought processes like this. Sometimes God's angry with me. Sometimes he's happy with me. Sometimes he blesses me. Sometimes he curses me. Today he prospers me because tomorrow he gives me poverty, poverty to humble me. If I'm asked, when is God happy with me? The answer is, when I'm doing right. Well, the problem with this thinking is it's old covenant thinking, not new covenant thinking. Do you know what I mean when I say old covenant and new covenant? Old covenant is what God made with Abraham. New covenant we have because of Jesus Christ. Under the old covenant, God demanded righteousness from man. And under grace, God provided righteousness for man. The Lord tends to speak to me a lot through books. And a friend of Annie's, Eridan, I think, gave her a book by Joseph Prince called Destined to Reign. And I remember where it was sitting, and I picked it up. I said, Annie, where would you get this? She told me, and, and, I, and I started to read it. And there has not been a book in my life, I don't believe, to this point that has transformed me as much, some of this, this thinking and things. And I just wanted to read something to you from it because... He says it better than I can ever say it. He says, You may be surprised to find out that there are many believers today who do not believe that they've been perfected forever by the finished work of Jesus Christ. They are still depending on their efforts, their self-efforts to qualify themselves. Perhaps you yourself are wondering, how can I be fully assured that all my sins have already been forgiven? It's a good question. Notice that after Jesus offered his life as a sacrifice and payment for all of our sins, he sat down. He sat down at the Father's right hand. Do you realize that under the old covenant, every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins? But the Bible goes on to say that Jesus, after he offered one sacrifice for sins forever, He sat down. Jesus sat down to demonstrate to us that the work is indeed finished. 
Under the old covenant, the priests who served in the tabernacle of Moses, they never sat down. But they stood ministering daily because his work could never be finished. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sins. In fact, if you notice that in the holy place of the tabernacle of Moses, there's not a single piece of furniture prepared for the priest to sit on. To sit on. You will never find a single chair in the holy place. You'll find an altar of incense, the menorah, and even a table of showbread. But interestingly, there are no chairs. This is because the work of the priest was never finished. Only Jesus' work is a finished work. And not only did he sit down at the Father's right hand, but he made us to sit with him. <clears throat> Listen to this verse from Ephesians 2, 4 through 6. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ and made us to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> That's like the first chapter. So many good things in here. This book's in the library, and if you want this one, you can have it. I remember, I love finishing books. I was laying on the bed and I closed it. I was just sitting there thinking for a minute. And I went out and I told Annie, I said, get the kids, let's go to dinner. And we have five kids and they're, we go to Chili's because it's loud. Our kids, it doesn't matter if you break a plate or what happens, but I was sitting there across from Annie and I said, honey, I have, I am, something's going on with me right now. I have this weight, a literal physical feeling like this weight has come off of me. I, if, if, is it levitating? I felt like I was walking on air at that moment. I, I told her that I, I wasn't sure, in, in that moment, I wasn't sure what was happening. And, but immediately after that, I could tell that, that this, this idea of grace, this thing that God has done for me, that receiving that, it was pulling me out of hurtful thinking in patterns, you know? That's what I found. It pulls me out of these hurtful patterns. Think about in your life, what are hurtful patterns, keyword patterns? What are those things that happen over and over again? Just in the men's group we were talking last week about, it was so cool how we all identified on as, as men, how we have these thought processes we go through. We, we do these like scenarios in our mind, right? Where we're thinking about uh, a problem we're having. And it's like these patterns that just keep going over and over and over again. They're, they're, not, they're not even helpful. How grace causes me to desire to sin less. This was huge for me. A desire to sin less. So it wasn't about trying harder or coming up with the, the plan. Although some of those things are good. But it was understanding that God forgave me and the, the grace that he offers that, that allowed me to just desire sin less. I mean, gosh, if, if you're in sin, if you're in sin patterns, and if you can just come up with a way to desire it less... His grace was the only way that I could receive his love over and over and over again for me. I had struggled to be humble with my wife and my children and my shortcomings. And it wasn't so much me saying that I'm sorry. I just screwed up. I'm sorry. It was more about me making, making sure that I was this example of a dad. You know, that if I share with my kids my, my sin or my downfalls, then, then that may be an excuse for them to, to do those things. It was just prideful, and it wasn't receiving the grace of the Father. I remember one 
time we were heading over the beach, Annie was actually already there with the kids, and I think we were going to visit Mark and Jan, and Valley and I, this was maybe just not long after I'd read the book, and uh, Valley had to work, I had to work, so her and I went over together, drove over by ourselves, and I started to talk to Valley about some of the misguided thinking that I had, and when I was raising her and, and was talking to her and just kind of confessing some things and was even thinking about it. I told her, I said, Valley, I don't know if you remember this, but I actually cut out of construction paper cute little bubbles and put the Ten Commandments all over your wall when you were three. I mean, it's like, no, no pressure. I'll never forget Annie. <laughs> Annie's laughing. I'll never forget her face when she walked in. She goes, that's interesting. But I told Valley, I am so sorry for what I, you know, my, my fear-based parenting, worried about how you're going to be, and, and she told her I was sorry. And out of that actually came me, came where I was actually confessing things to her that I struggle with in my life, with sin and condemnation and things like that. And it was really hard for me. It was really hard for me as a dad. Because again, you know, I want to be this example, this thing that she can look up to. And I'll never forget, I looked over at her and she had tears just rolling down her face. And she said, Dad, I have never loved you more than I love you right now. What an example of embracing his grace. God extends grace to us over and over and over again. He sees you through the cross. What did Dan say? Something about when, you, when God looks at you, he sees himself. You need to see yourself that way as well. My third theme is about God's heart. His heart is that we would embrace him in our trials and sorrows. So at this point, I had accepted the Lord at a young age, and I was receiving his love i was accepting his grace and i will tell you those are a journey i still do that i love at the end of this book it says at the very end of the book it says read it again because it's so true you get so caught in things that you've learned and things that have come from growing up and things but how does my core understanding of the concepts of receiving god's love receiving his grace intertwine with the trials and sorrows of the world. John 16.33 says this, I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. About six years ago, in 2013, in February last month, never forget where I was, Annie and I were sitting on the bed on a Saturday morning, and I got a call from my oldest brother. He had four girls. And his youngest girl of 19 had just taken her life in her, in her dorm room at college. I was struck with pain. Never in my life have I felt like that. Where I could not physically control crying. I couldn't stop. I knew that this must be what it felt like to have a broken heart. Thinking about my brother and his wife losing a child, having five children of my own, 
thinking about my parents, thinking about everyone that's involved. It trickles out so far. Annie and I made quick arrangements for Mia and Will, and we, we took Valley, Jackson, and Sophie to Texas. We were able to see my niece the night before the funeral, and we were caravanning to the funeral home, and much like we do when we go on vacation, because we're all from different areas, and we're all in our cars, and Annie just looked at me and said, this is just surreal, like, is this actually happening? About two years after that, I had a business meeting in, in San Antonio. And so I decided, while I'm in Texas, I'm going to go to Waco and I'm going to do a factory visit, of, a factory that I've been working with, and, and I'm going to go down to McKinney, Texas, and I'm going to visit my brother and his wife. And I remember on my way there, I was asking myself, I wonder if they're going to want to just have fun, go off for pizza and talk and have a good time. Or are they going to want to talk about this stuff? I thought, well, I'll just be open to whatever they think. I had no idea what I was walking into. I don't know if it's because it was suicide or because it was on a college campus, if it, if it was like this, but, but everything became a crime scene. And so for two years, the law enforcement had everything of my nieces. Her computer, her journal, everything from that room was held up for two years. And just days before I got to my brother and his wife, they had given that to them. There were videos they hadn't seen, her journal she, they had not read, and they wanted me to engage in all of it. And here I was wondering if they even wanted to talk about it. There were videos of her, she was dating someone and she was doing a Bible study with them. There were videos she had saved of her praying for them. I read the last entry of her journal the day that she died. She was calling out to God for certain things in her struggles. Struggles with her relationships. She had dyslexia. She was struggling with school. But nothing, nothing that pointed to something that would happen like this. Something so drastic. We were just questioning what in the world happened. The police officer that handed the computer to my brother said, 99% of the time today, when this type of thing happens, we can tell what happened in this thing, in the computer. He said, can't figure this one out. The morning that I was going to head back to Orlando, my brother asked me if I would go to her gravesite. And we stood there in silence. And he said, You know what? He said, I get it that there's a God. And I get it that He loves us. But I think we're really missing something here. He said, I think we're just pawns in His master plan. I didn't say anything. It's probably best that I didn't because I, I didn't know what to say and probably wouldn't have been good if I had something great to say. I flew home back to Orlando. Annie picked me up at the airport with the kids and we went right to church. It was on a Sunday. This was when we were meeting at SAC. If you remember, if you're facing the seats, you know there was that area back there. If you get there late, you can stand over there, sit over there. And I remember walking in a little bit late. Worship was going on. And I sat down. 
And I was holding Mia in my lap. She, might, she was five at the time. And I was thinking, really, God? In 15 years, this could happen? That you would allow this to happen or any of my other kids? And I looked at people worshiping that night and they were raising their hands and I was thinking to myself, would any of them be doing that if they had stood on the gravesite of their loved one? And this deep, deep cynicism was creeping in. Does prayer even matter? What are we doing here? Why all the confusion? Why when I had put all of this stock in the fact that he will not abandon you, he will not forsaken you, it appears to me that he did that. The parallel that I do see working here between earthly fathers and our heavenly father, okay? As a dad, as a father, I will do everything in my power not to abandon my kids. I will do everything in my power to avert pain. To be there for them. But the thing that I can't control is the world. And I can't control free will. I won't be able to stop all the harmful things from the world that are coming at them. I love what Dan said last week. It was so profound. When he talked about being abused for 15 years, he was almost mad. Don't you put this on my father. That was the result of others' free will. I think that if we can have this perspective of our Heavenly Father, I believe that we can readily embrace that He is with us, that He's for us, that He does not abandon us. And even better yet, I'm talking about the correlations between an earthly father and a heavenly father. He forgives sins. He heals. He redeems. He creates new stories. He gives eternal life. But sometimes isn't it in the acknowledgement of his power that there is this frustration? That he is all powerful? That he, in a way, in our minds at least, that he can avert these things? I love what Cole said a few weeks ago and I identify with, I'm not sure I would have set it up this way. But our Heavenly Father allows us to choose and in that choosing, I think, is even a demonstration of his love. I think that we can look to so many things in the world, so much information to, to, to give us a secure relationship with God. When it, would come, when it comes down to it for me, I think that there's a, there has to be a little bit of a trust in the mystery, a little bit of trust in the not understanding. I don't know if that verse that says, my ways are not your ways, I don't know if that relates to this, but but I've got to believe in some mystery in that. About three years ago, we were up in Ohio for Christmas. We were at Annie's family's and I was in a funk. I always say that to Annie and my kids when I'm just not happening. He can't hear me. I can't hear him. And I'm just in a funk. It doesn't matter. I don't really care that much. I'm still good, Christian, whatever, but I'm just in a funk. And I was in that. And I was reading a book Jesus visited me. Never forget where I was. And he called me something related to all this, gave me a name. And I went out and found Annie. She was cooking with her sister and I grabbed her and I said, Annie, come here. And I said, I just, Jesus just came into my presence and he gave me a name. She was like, that's great. She went back cooked. 
I didn't tell her what it was. I just felt like it was a secret, you know? But I went back upstairs, and y'all, I ran back to him. I came out of the funk, and he just held me. And it's just like, that's, that's the only place that it matters when you're going through all this stuff. And this is not a message to say that we shouldn't question. We've, it's been said from this stage over and over and over again that God can handle it, and I believe it. But the problem is my brother is still in the funk. It just breaks my heart. After six years, sweetest times that I have with my Savior is when I'm going to Him and I'm telling Him I've tried to figure this all out. I can't do it anymore. I've blamed you. I've questioned you. I've ignored you. I'm just done. It's those times when I'm most vulnerable and unsteady in my faith that I feel like I know Him the best. And He's just always there with His arms open waiting for us. Ten Boom is a woman that lived during World War II. Does anyone know her? Her story, maybe? She um, she wrote a book called The Hiding Place, and it became a movie. Her and her family had a, a clock, a watch shop in Amsterdam, and actually went to visit there. And you can actually look in this cutout, this wall where they, they hid Jews during the war. Well, they were found out. And her and her whole family were sent to the concentration camps and she was there with her sister and her sister died and she survived. I love a quote of hers. It says, when a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't have to throw away the ticket and jump off. You still sit. You sit still and you trust the engineer. So it is with life. We can trust God farther than we can see. This was my story. I needed to accept the Father's love for me and know that He likes me. I needed to receive His grace. My father-in-law said to me when he was holding me, he said, this is going to last for a while. It's going to take some time. I'm still coming to terms with what it means to go through trials and sorrows and trouble. But I want to encourage you this morning, if nothing else, to embrace what your story is. Start by writing it down. Talk to God about it. However you communicate best, do that. And then if you can find someone trusted like I have with Annie to walk through that, my father-in-law, it's a blessing and it's worth the time. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.